Hosea. The book of Hosea is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. We're going to continue in this prophet that we have been walking through carefully over the last uh, few weeks. And Hosea chapter 4 is where we're going to look in just a minute. While you're turning there in your Bibles, I'm going to take just a minute and uh, pray before I do that. Uh, thank you, Holly and Rhoda, for playing this morning during the offertory. Appreciate that. It's always a good sign when Holly joins Rhoda at the piano. So uh, let's pray, though, this morning, shall we? Lord, we come before you this morning. We have our Bibles open before us, and we ask that you would, by your kindness, open our hearts to what your word says. You tell us that you bless those who look carefully into your perfect law. You bless those who look uh, per, uh, carefully into it so that we might, uh, they might see themselves and, more importantly, see you and your great grace. So help us this morning, this uh, book that is uh, easily neglected and often forgotten. Help us, we pray, as uh, the congregation listens and as I speak. Help me to speak helpfully, hopefully, graciously, truthfully to them for all of our encouragement. This book we pray, would you write its eternal truths on our hearts? We ask these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen. A few years ago, the NPR show called This American Life featured a story about a contract that the government in Colombia had with a marketer, a marketing executive. His name was Jose Miguel Sokolov. Now, the government of Colombia hired Jose because there were still, in uh, some of the more rural areas, leftist guerrilla rebels who were still fighting against the government. And the government had tried all kinds of means of bringing them home or defeating them. Uh, they decided, though, to try a marketing campaign, so they hired Jose. He ran a few ads on the radio and put up posters around the area where the guerrillas were. Uh, and uh, he had uh, quite a bit of success with his first campaign, which was a Christmas-themed uh, campaign to bring the rebels home. But then after a few months, the political situation was continuing to change and the uh, um, campaign was, was successful, so they decided to change tactics. This is what they did. They wanted to convince the rebels that it was okay for them to lay down their arms and come home, that if they came home, their villages would, would, rec would welcome them and would be happy to receive them. So they went and they found some of the mothers of the guerrilla fighters. Apparently their identity was not too much of a secret. But they found 37 women who had given birth to these fighters who were out in the jungle. And they asked the mothers to give them pictures of their sons as children. They had to be very young pictures so that no one would recognize them but the people actually in the photo. They took those pictures and they made posters of all of them, all 37 of them, and they hung them in the villages and in the uh, jungle edges around where the gorillas uh, were staying. And the... the uh, uh, posters had printed on them this message. Before you were a gorilla, you were my child. Come back home, I'm waiting for you. And the campaign was called A Mother's Voice. And th the idea behind it was that the, these mother's love would be able to penetrate all of the anger and violence and bitterness and warfare that had been built up in these men's lives for such a long time that it'd be enough for them to lay down their weapons and come home. Uh, today's a day when we think about moms and what they've done, what they mean to us, and how 
they have impacted us. A lot of us have good stories, good stories to tell, counsel, love, affirmation. Um, Some of us don't have good stories to tell, but today is mostly a day for good reflection. And even as we think about the good influence that a mother can have this morning throughout the day, we're going to go back to the book of Hosea where we actually find the flip side of that good and nurturing love. In fact, our topic, as it has been for the last three weeks, uh, we're going to talk this morning instead of about the life-giving influence that comes from love, we're going to talk this morning about, again, the disastrous consequences that come from the influence of human rebellion against God. We've been talking about rebellion for a few weeks now. Do you remember, and its influence actually, a few weeks ago when we started chapter 4, we talked about how our rebellion against God has impacted creation. The world is broken because of our sin, our rebellion against God. Then we talked about the influence that priests can have, those who are supposed to be engaged in spiritual leadership, and, and when they don't teach God's word as they should, the, disaster, the consequences for a society are disastrous and harmful for uh, it's most vulnerable, in particular here, the young women. This is always the case. It is always the case that tyrants, tyrants, when there is corruption at the top, those who are the most vulnerable in society are hurt uh, most grievously. It's interesting. Uh, tyrants run for office or they get into power by telling you about how they're going to help the weak and help the vulnerable. And when they get into power, it's the weak and vulnerable that suffer the most. That's the way it always works. Now, this morning, what we're going to talk about, we're going to continue this uh, story of influence. In Judges, uh, Judges, that was a while ago. In Hosea 4 and 5 this morning, the prophet is going to turn his attention to how the nation of Israel is influencing the nation of Judah shouldn't surprise you the influence is not good. Now, uh, let me uh, remind you of this here. Remember that, that, that uh, the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah are two nations in Hosea that used to be one nation. They're one people, really. They're Abraham's descendants. This is the one nation that God, uh, through Moses, led out of, the promise, uh, out of Egypt and into the promised land. It's the one nation that David was king over. It was the one nation that divided into two halves. Israel in the north and Judah in the south, when uh, after Solomon had ruled over them. So these are really one peoples. They have one law. They have one God that they should be faithful to. Uh, but they were very different to the two nations. Remember, Israel was in the north. We talked about this a while ago. Israel was in the north, and it was the more prosperous, the more financially prosperous, the uh, more politically powerful, the more militarily mighty nation. Judah, on the other hand, was in the south, and it didn't have the money, it didn't have the influence that Israel had, but it did have a better relationship with God. The people in Judah generally followed God more faithfully. You remember I made a distinction that Israel is the nation that had all the prophets, P-R-O-F-I-T-S, and Judah is the nation that had all the prophets, P-R-O-P-H-E-T-S. That's how they're distinguished. And in this context here, Hosea the prophet is concerned about how Israel is influencing Judah. I want to talk with you about that this morning because I want you to know whether you realize it or not, you are an influential person. You influence others, you're influenced by others. And it's wise to ask who, both both directions, who am I influencing and who is influencing 
me. Uh, Pastor Scott and I are reading a really fine book. It's a little short book by Mark Dever. It's called Discipling. And he said that every follower of Jesus is called in some way to take deliberate steps to help others follow Jesus. One of the ways that you know you're a genuine follower of Jesus is that you're helping other people follow him. Now, who are you influencing and who is influencing you? Or to ask it another way, we can ask this question another way. Who do you want to be like? Who makes you laugh? Who, uh, whose books do you always read? Whose shows do you always watch? Whose advice do you always seek? In Psalm 51, there's a, a verse that lands heavy in my mind when I read it. Psalm 15, the psalmist is talking about people who honor God, people whose lives live lives that honor God. And, and he says, the person who honors God despises a vile person. So there's a mismatch between someone who claims to honor God and yet laughs at or celebrates the life of or wants to be like or supports or votes for a vile person. There's a mismatch there. Uh, let's read the text before us, and then I, then I want to uh, give you some warnings from the Bible about influence. Hosea chapter 4, verse 15. Look at what the text says here. Though you, Israel, commit adultery, do not, do not let Judah become guilty. There it is, influence right there. Do not go to Gilgal, do not go up to Beth-Avon, and do not swear as surely as the Lord lives. The Israelites are stubborn, like a stubborn heifer. How then can the Lord pasture them like lambs in a meadow? Ephraim, oh, now, uh, this is the first place in the book of Hosea that, God calls the, uh, that Hosea calls the nation of Israel Ephraim. Um, Ephraim is the largest and most influential tribe in Israel. And sometimes Ephraim stands in for the whole nation. And sometimes Ephraim stands in for just the most influential people who are part of the nation. Um, It would be uh, a little bit like uh, referring to... um, uh, the whole movie complex, we do this, we refer to the whole movie complex in the United States as Hollywood. Not every movie is made in Hollywood, but we associate it with Hollywood. So we'll talk about the movies that Hollywood makes. Well, uh, he's using Ephraim just as a substitute for the whole nation of Israel. He, he does it here. Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Even when their drinks are gone, they continue their prostitution. Their rulies, rulers dearly love shameful ways. A whirlwind will sweep them away and their sacrifices will bring them shame. Hear this, you priests. Oh, he returns to the theme again of influential priests. Pay attention, you Israelites. Listen, royal house. This judgment is against you. You've been a snare at Mizpah, a net spread out on Tabor. The rebels are knee-deep in slaughter. I will discipline all of them. I know all about Ephraim. Israel's not hidden from me. Ephraim, you have now turned to prostitution. Israel is corrupt. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart. They do not acknowledge the Lord. Israel's arrogance testifies against them. The Israelites, even Ephraim, stumble in their sin. Judah also, Judah, stumbles with them. When they go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. They are unfaithful to the Lord. They give birth to illegitimate children. When they celebrate their new feasts, He will devour their fields. 
Sound the trumpet in Gibeah and the horn in Ramah. Raise the battle cry in Beth-Avon. Lead on, Benjamin. Ephraim will be laid waste on the day of reckoning among the tribes of Israel. I proclaim what is certain. Judah's leaders are like those who move boundary stones. I will pour out my wrath on them like a flood of water. Ephraim is oppressed, trampled in judgment, intent on pursuing idols. I am like a moth to Ephraim, like rot to the people of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his sores, then Ephraim turned to Assyria and said to the great king for help, but he is not able to cure you, not able to heal your sores. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a great lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off with no one, no one to rescue them. Then I will return to my lair until they have borne their guilt and seek my face. In their misery, they will earnestly seek me. Now, this is poetry, it's Hebrew poetry, and sometimes it can be hard to follow the line of thought through the text. But basically what we have here in these verses is we have three things. There are warnings, um, do not go to Gilgal, do not go up to Beth-Avon, do not become guilty. There are complaints where God says specific things about Israel, about what's wrong with them, what the people are doing. They run out of alcohol, it doesn't stop them from going to their prostitutes. So complaints. And then third here, there are punishments in this text. Verse 19 says, a whirlwind will sweep them away. You could actually go through and line by line that passage I just read. You could write uh, warning, complaint, or punishment next to every single line. Which, which one of those three things is it? Um, what, what I want to do this morning, that's the pattern in the text that we see, but I want to talk about influence. In fact, I have three warnings about influence that arise from the text. I've been thinking this week about the people I listen to and the people that I follow, and I want you to think carefully about them too. So here are three warnings. Number one, beware of following people whose faith has been replaced by tradition. People whose faith has been replaced by tradition. Now, in verse 15, there are three warnings, three specific commands that Hosea gives. Do not go to Gilgal, do not go to Beth-Avon, and do not swear as surely as the Lord lives. Now, these cities he mentions. This is a wonderful time for me to remind you that if you want to read your Bible well, what do you need? A map. You need a good map in your Bible as you read the Bible. So what do I say? If you don't have a Bible with a map in it, go sell your Bible and buy another one. Or look in the lost and found. (laughs) No, don't do that. Well, you might find something good there. But uh, don't do that. Uh, uh, get a Bible with a map. Now, these cities, Gilgal and Beth-Avon. Gilgal are two cities, and Gilgal uh, plays a significant role in the Bible's story. Gilgal was the city just across the river from uh, where the Israelites crossed. When they crossed the river Jordan, they came into the Promised Land and they stopped at Gilgal. And it was from Gilgal that they went to attack Jericho. It was there where the men were circumcised, where they celebrated their first Passover in the land. It was one of the cities on the Samuel's route. Samuel the prophet was a, a circuitous, circuitous prophet. He had a prophecy circuit. And Gilgal was one of the cities that he went to. It was an important city, deep significance. Now, Beth-Avon, you won't find Beth-Avon on a map because Hosea is making fun here. Beth-Avon is uh, actually the, uh, um, Hosea's substitute for the city Beth-El. Beth-El means house of God, and Beth-El was in a really important place. Beth-El was where Jacob had a, uh, uh, 
a dream where God promised him that he would bring him to the promised land and bless him. Uh, Beth-Avon means house of nothing. Hosea is making fun of it. Gilgal and Beth-Avon are like um, Valley Forge in our country or like Lexington and Concord. When you want to think of important cultural, important historical cities, uh, Philadelphia would be one of them, like like Gilgal and Beth-Avon. And apparently what has happened is the Israelites and Judahites have made those cities into shrines, into special sacred sites, except they're not worshiping God there. Instead, they're, they're uh, places where they're worshiping idols. Their purpose has been turned upside down. Faithful people in the scriptures would say, as surely as the Lord lives, they would say that as part of their devotion to God. But over time, it apparently became a phrase that you would just throw away, uh, that you would use in vain. On, on Sunday afternoons, you would say, I hope my football team wins. And your friend would say, oh, surely as the Lord lives, I hope they do. It's a throwaway line. It doesn't mean anything. Don't, don't do that, he says. By their faithlessness, the Israelites have turned their grand history, their great places, they've turned them into meaningless and empty places. Later in in chapter 5, he mentions two other cities like this, Mizpah and Tabor, two other important cities. The Israelites, they've turned them into snares. This is what happens when faith, when true biblical reliance on God is replaced just by tradition and just by an appreciation for history, but not a real active relationship with God. A few years ago, the San Jose Mercury News had a report about a small group of very devout Episcopalian believers who, were gather, who gathered together in Washington, D.C. Uh, James Kelly is one of them. They're enthusiastic Episcopalians, but they're also atheists. This is what uh, Kelly said. We all love the incense, the stained glass windows, the organ music, the vestments and all that. It's drama. It's aesthetics. It's the ritual. That's neat stuff. I don't want to have to give all that up just because I don't believe in God. (laughs) With some of those same things that actually concern the, the reformers those traditions that have been laid down on top of the teaching of the Bible. And and the Reformers saw how these traditions and cultural practices had surpassed and replaced the clarity of the Scriptures. So one of the things that the Reformers did so many years ago is they stripped the church of all these extra-biblical traditions. That's Our worship is, is shaped in our church by those concerns. We don't do anything fancy at church. We do what the Bible tells believers to do when we gather together. We don't, we don't want to become attached to anything except the Bible and its teaching. I know it's Mother's Day. It's a terrible day to talk about this. It's Mother's Day. It's a day for tradition. It's a day for sentiment. It's a day for uh, thinking about our past. But here's a warning for people for whom faith or church has just become tradition or just become sentiment. Do you know where that happens most often in our culture? Uh, it's when our, our faith is on public display. Uh, we pray before NASCAR races. We sing hymns at country music shows. But sometimes those, those traditions, I know there are lots of genuine followers of Jesus for, at those events for whom this is genuine expression of piety, but, but there is a lot of emptiness there. Sentiment, and tradition. 
Be careful of coming to church or reading the Bible because it is just mom's favorite book or because it reminds you of sitting on your dad's lap at the Christmas Eve service when you had to hold the candles together. Or because church makes you think of apple pie or lemonade at grandma's house. It's your faith, your own. Do you know, I want to suggest a couple of different ways in which you can tell that your faith is yours and not just tradition. Just... There's more ways, there's better ways we can think about, uh, maybe not better, there's more ways we can think about this more, but just let me mention them uh, uh, briefly this morning. You can tell when your faith is your own and not just your tradition by how you speak and think about Jesus, about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's easy in our culture. We can talk about God a lot, God's name, and we, at the end of his speeches, the president can say, God bless America, but it's Jesus' name that is the the. the uh, the, the sword that pierces. It's, it's the name that, that drives a wedge between people. You know, uh, um, all of our founding documents uh, refer to God, but not the name of Jesus. They don't have the name of Jesus in them, because even 230 years ago, the name of Jesus was a wedge-dividing uh, presence. The Lord Jesus Christ. Another way that you can tell the difference between faith that uh, is leaning towards tradition and faith that is your own is by how you respond to a local congregation of believers. It's very easy to stand in the stage or it's very easy to uh, be in a public arena and talk uh, about God or sing about God, but where your, your faith in God actually has real expression, real visible expression, is in a local congregation of believers. How do you know that you really understand God's forgiveness of you, that it's real, that your experience of God's forgiveness is real? Well, Ephesians 4 tells us, you know that you have been forgiven and that you understand forgiveness when you forgive other people. Ephesians 4.32, just as God has forgiven us in Christ, let us forgive one another. You can tell your relationship with God is real by how you love other people, other believers. Uh, so... Uh, how can you say you love God that you have not seen if you don't, John says, if you don't love your brother who you have, whom you have seen? This is visible expression of, of a vertical reality. It shows up horizontally. Um, you, you can tell that your relationship with God is real by when you give and you, have, uh, uh, you demonstrate, I have treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth. Uh, some of you are aware, maybe you remember, that our church has been involved in a church consultation process. We're starting to get some of the results from our church consultation process. And one of the things that the church consultants noted about our congregation, uh, there's a lot of positive things in the report. We'll be talking about this more next month. But uh, one of the things that they said about our congregation is that our church is, uh, one of the things that's very unusual about our church is we have above average, significantly above average in our church, attendance. That, that the people who are a part of our church, not our numbers that, that are here, but the consistency of our members. That, that the people who are part of our church, they come regularly. They come often, they come faithfully, they come consistently to church. That's a, a great observation that he made. Significantly higher. Fifty years ago, average people who were part of a church went four Sundays, or they were there seven or ten times a month. Now, on average, it's three or two, except here. That's wonderful. One of the other things that they noted, actually, too, was that our church uh, uh, giving statistically per person is, is higher on average than, than other congregations. I don't say that because 
we're going we're to brag about this or be proud of this. But these are things that point to the reality of a relationship with Jesus Christ, a, re- a reality that it is not tradition, just tradition. Now, it should surprise you to know here that, that what's happening at Gilgal and Bethel is not just empty tradition. It's actually harmful. It's, it's poisonous. It's ruinous. So we're going to move on to warning number two. Warning number two. Beware of those following, beware of following those blinded by pride so that repentance is impossible. Beware of, those following, beware of following those blinded by pride so that repentance is impossible. See, the traditions that are happening here in, this, in, in Hosea at Gilgal, at Beth-Avon, they're, they're not like marshmallows. They're not empty and fluffy and just full of sugar. They're actually poisonous traditions that are happening. And, and, and we have this blindedness that's happening. The center of God's complaint about the Israelites is in Hosea chapter 5, verse 5. Look what the text says. Israel's arrogance testifies against them. They're proud before God. They don't need God. Right at the end of verse 4, right above it, it says, they do not acknowledge the Lord. Knowledge. That's our, our word. We're, we're learning the word acknowledge in Hebrew. Um, it means to know facts about God and to respond appropriately to Him, to revere God as He is. Hosea uses that word all the time. He's concerned about this for the people. Um, now, this arrogance manifests itself in a lot of ways, this pride. Look at verse uh, uh, 16 of chapter 4. It says in chapter 4, 16, the Israelites are stubborn like a stubborn heifer. They're cows. Um, it would be great. God would love it to lead his people like lambs in a meadow. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. God would be delighted to lead his people like lambs. But they're not sheep. They're cows. They're stubborn cows. You lead sheep. You drive cows. There's a few things that are as disappointing. It's as disappointing as a parent... When you, when you wake up in the morning, you have good plans for your family. You have, you have something that you're going to do. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be thrilling. But you realize soon after the day begins that your plans are not going to come to fruition because your, your children are antagonizing each other so much that you can't share with them the good things that you had planned for them. It's just so disappointing. I, 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 I wince inside when, when we're at Hershey Park and some mother is speaking to her child in a stroller and she, and she says... I brought you here to have fun. We're supposed to be having fun. What's wrong with you? Aren't you going to have a good time? Stop complaining because we're here to have fun. I played this whole day for you so we can have a good time. I wince when I see that. But there's days, there's days, aren't there, in which, which you would like to say to your children, I have blessings for you. I have great blessings. I have wonderful plans for you today. But I can't give them to you because you are in no position to receive them. You stubborn cows. Don't say that part. Don't say that last part. Say that last part. It would be biblical, but don't say it. Just don't recommend that. They're blind and they're stubborn. Then um, the text also says, verse, 15, verse 17 of chapter 4, they're joined to idols. That word joined means attached to or enslaved to. It's used in Psalm 58 to describe a charmer who hypnotizes a snake. The snake is joined to the charmer. 
Maybe that's related to the spirit of prostitution in chapter 4, verse 4. There is just this, there is this in, in this text, so damning, this proud, stubborn blindness. And what's so awful about it, verse 4, is that it makes it impossible for them to repent. Verse 4, their deeds do not permit them to repent, to return to their God. That word return is the word Hebrew word shuv. It's one of the most important words in the prophets. Return to God, turn back, turn to God, and their deeds do not permit them. And even if they wanted to, chapter 5, verse 6, when they make any efforts as they ever were, when they go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. Verse 4 should fall thunderously. There are people that are so far gone that it is impossible for them to repent. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. We have this paradox in the Bible. Paradox all the way through the Bible where we are commanded, God's spokesmen, uh, God's representatives are commanded to call people to turn to him, to repent, to invite, to plead, to command with people, to repent, to turn, to believe. And yet, here is a group of people for whom it is impossible. Is there any hope for them at all? Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. And we have to think very carefully about this. Should very soberly about this. There seems to be some pretty clear implications, I think, of, of this text. Think about what happens in a culture like this, in a culture in rebellion against God. I think this path, this, this, this text described the path that human beings, all of us are on in our rebellion against God. Look, I, I wrote down some verses from 2 Timothy. Paul makes a, an observation. So look what he says about uh, the, the, the people that Timothy is serving. Mark this, 2 Timothy 3.1. Mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents. That's the next Mother's Day text. Ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. It's interesting that describes the lineup on most network television shows, isn't it? Now, we'll keep going. 2 Timothy 3.12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Chapter 4, verse 4. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. One more verse, verse 14. Paul names names. Paul names names. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed their message. This passage, Hosea 4 and 5 and 2 Timothy 3, work together to remind us that you, you who are a follower of Jesus Christ, there are people with whom you will be out of step, always. And it will inevitably cost you something. This picture the prophet paints and that Paul adds to is why we don't get concerned. This is why we don't change our views. This is why we don't respond with shock when people make accusations against us, when people tell us that we are on the wrong side of history, or when they accuse us of being out of date uh, or uh, even hateful. 
There are people who are adamantly opposed. They're adamantly oriented away from God. And we don't reorient ourselves to them. Followers of people, followers of God, God's people, are not called to be weather vanes who rotate and turn with the changing winds. We expect to be out of step with people. That's just the way it is. But I think this, this, this description of verse 4 has some very disturbing personal realities too. This is not a pleasant description of the Israelites at all, is it? Uh, they, they move from drinking to prostitution, corruption. They're knee-deep in slaughter. In verse 2, they're unfaithful. They're stumbling. And, and I think, though, this description is not just reserved for these people. It's a description of all human beings in rebellion against God. Some of you, some of you, we're a third of the way through the book of Hosea, and some of you say, okay, Divinity, we get the idea. All right, we're a mess. Okay, I understand. I got it. You can move on now. We understand. We know. But maybe not. See, unless you truly understand the depth of the problem, you will never truly appreciate the solution. And the book of Hosea here is going into painstaking descriptions of our condition. Human rebellion against God is not just breaking His rules or it's not just breaking His heart. It is deeply embedded within us. This is heart trouble. Verse 18 of chapter 4 says, Their rulers love shameful ways. We love shameful ways. Maybe you should think of Hosea as a forensic pathologist. I have a friend who loves the television show NCIS. That show's been on the air since before the days of Walter Cronkite, I think. Have you ever seen the show NCIS? You know that show? So um, uh, uh, they bring in dead bodies all the time to the pathology lab, and they're in terrible shape, these bodies. I, I could not have this job. Um, a crime has been committed and the, the bodies come that are evidence of the crime. They're burned beyond recognition or they're uh, dried out. They're decomposing. They're waterlogged. It's really rather disturbing. Um, but they look at the bodies and they examine everything about them. They want to find everything they can about the bodies in, in, in exacting detail. Why? Because unless you know the full extent of the problem, you will not really understand the solution. When Hosea says their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, Hosea is on the march to making you a hopeless person. He wants you to be hopeless. He wants to realize that you, that, that you have no ability to self-improve yourself. That there's no possibility that you have of fixing your life or making it better or just improving it here and there a little bit with just a little nip and a tuck. There is no human effort that is going to fix what human rebellion against God has broken. The damage it has wrought is too great. It's too severe. If the Israelites have any hope, if they have any hope of all, if you have any hope, if you have any hope at all, it's got to be because of God's great kindness. Legan Duncan was uh, driving through a, uh, the, a city, a large city in the United States, one of the biggest churches in the world. He passed by, and, and outside the, 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 the church had a huge billboard, and the church billboard said, Become the champion you were meant to be, and invited people to his services. We're not really interested in our church in helping you become the champion you were meant to be. In fact, our main goal is to point you to God's great champion. 
if people whose deeds if people whose deeds make it impossible for them to turn to God, if, if they have any hope, it will only be because of God's grace. You really, really need a Savior. Holy, completely, total. not to give you a boost, not to merely set an example for you, but to do the work for you, to obey God like you should have obeyed Him, and to pay the penalty you owe because of your rebellion against Him. That champion, of course, is Jesus. He's our rescuer. You have no hope. You have no hope without him. Dane Orland helps us understand this is one of the things that sets Christianity aside, different from other faiths. Listen to what he says. Christianity is the unreligion, he says. It turns all our religious instincts on, our, on their heads. The ancient Greeks told us to be moderate. How? By knowing our inclinations. The Romans told us to be strong by ordering our lives. Buddhism tells us to be disillusioned by annihilating our consciousness. Hinduism tells us to be absorbed by merging our souls. Islam tells us to be submissive by subjecting our wills. Agnosticism tells us to be at peace by ignoring our doubts. Moralism tells us to be good by discharging our obligations. Only the gospel tells us to be free by acknowledging our failure. Christianity is the unreligion because it is the one faith whose founder tells us to bring not our doing, but our need. You don't become a Christian by being good. You cannot be good enough. You become a Christian by bringing your need and presenting it to Jesus. It's an act of dependent faith. The text in verse 6 says that God has withdrawn from them. The good news in the New Testament is that he has come in the form of his son to rescue us. Now, let's move on to the third and final warning this morning, shall we? Uh, This third warning. Beware of following those whom God will destroy. Beware of following those whom God will destroy. So listen to people who are, have and celebrate this dependence on Jesus Christ that we just talked about. Listen to them. Be influenced by them. But also be forewarned here, there are those, well, that's what the second half of chapter 5 is about. Apparently, apparently, the people of Judah did not listen to Hosea the prophet. You can imagine the scene. Hosea the prophet, he served for 50 years. Maybe one time he went to Gilgal, and he's there, and the Judahites are coming up from Judah down the south, and they're going to worship at Gilgal, and Hosea is on the side of the road saying, don't go there. Don't worship the gods that they're worshiping at Gilgal. I know it's a historic site, but don't go there. They're not worshiping the true God. If you go there, it's a shame. It's a trap. It's a net. Don't go. And the people of Judah didn't listen. Not at all. Because here in this text, they are being disciplined just like the people of Israel. Do you, how, how many people do you know who actually heed warnings? That happen often, that people actually heed warnings? There's something about people, about, it's true of everybody in this room, from the age of about 13 to at least 30, you are immune from warnings because they don't apply to you. Did you know that? There's period of time where they just don't apply to you because you can escape all consequences. There's a lot here in this to see. In verses 8 through 11, there's this war cry. 
Sound the trumpet in Gibeah. Sound the horn in Rabbah. Raise the battle cry. There's, there's war coming. Some people try to, to take this passage and they fit it into a war that took place in the Old Testament. I'm not sure that's real easy to do. But what's happening here is that, that they're being invaded. God uses foreign armies to discipline his people. And, and Judah's leaders, verse 10, are just as guilty as the Israelites. And God uses these very unusual images to describe himself. Verse 12, I am like a moth to Ephraim, like rot to the people of Judah. And the word moth there could refer to a maggot, or even it could refer to pus in an open wound. God says, I'm like pus in your wounds. Days of pre-antibiotics. A soldier goes off to war, he gets injured. If that wound becomes infected, he's not going to survive. God says, I am going to destroy you. I am going to be like pus in your wounds. I'm going to bring death. It's going to be slow. It's going to be painful. It's going to be inexorable. Then in verse 14, he changes the image there, doesn't he? He says he's like a lion. I will be like a lion. How do lions kill With violence and speed, I'm going to tear them to pieces. What did the people do when things started to get bad? Verse 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his sores, then Ephraim turned to Assyria. Oh, Assyria. He's no no help. No help at all. This passage tells us that you have no hope apart from God. And when God is on the warpath, you have no rescue from God. There is nowhere you can hide. This is the God with whom we have to do. He has a very specific purpose in mind in all this work that he's doing. Look at verse 15. I have done this so that the people will seek my face, that they will earnestly seek me. Here's how God responds to stubborn heifers. This is what God does. Not going to be led like a lamb. So they're going to meet the God who is like a lion. Join with them if you want. Join with this stubborn, blind, rebel-loving people. Join with them. Be influenced by them. Follow them. Laugh at their jokes. Buy their products. uh, uh, Read their books. Spend your time with them. But be prepared. Be prepared for your loss. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and and, uh, you have warned us soberly. You have warned us grievously about the many, many shades of our rebellion against you, how, how ugly they are. Lord, we, we tremble to think about this verse that says it is impossible for them to repent because of their deeds. Oh, Father how we need your grace, how we need you to rescue us. Lord, I thank you for the men and women in our congregation who give the evidence uh, by the lives they lead of their true faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have brought us to hopelessness and then to rescue through the Lord Jesus by faith in his name, his great work. Lord, I do pray that you would give me greater discernment about the people whose influence I 
sit under, I read and listen to and watch. And I pray that you would do that for all of us here. Uh, Remind us of the reality that this world is dark and we, through Jesus Christ, are children of light rescued from that kingdom of darkness. You are good to us. Work this out in our lives according to your goodwill and pleasure. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.